Happy Sunday and thank you for joining me today. What a week it has been. It has been a very, very long and exhausting week. You know, I actually considered uh, just taking a break this weekend from podcasting, but I, I just looked at the news and I was like, there is no way, absolutely no way. I have to go in and podcast. So here I am and I've published this episode. All right. His name was Lewis. Uh, Lewis Beam. He was born in 1946 and he grew up in Lofkin, Texas. Um, after high school, young Lewis joined the U.S. Army where he served in the Vietnam War for a year and a half. He later bragged about being able to murder more than 50 Vietnamese. In 1968, when he returned home, he had a Born to Lose tattoo and indignation for the U.S. government. Uh, then Lewis Beam took a very, very dark, dark turn. He joined the Ku Klux Klan and subsequently became a leader, um, indicating his hatred and contempt for minorities. One of the groups he became the head of was a white supremacist militia group that formed shortly after the Vietnam War. And these groups weren't like the infamous Jim Crow era where you had white supremacists in the police departments, local government, and in and, and courts, and also in other high places in the government. They were diametrically different. These groups did not trust law enforcement or the government. In fact, they hated both of these entities as much as they hated and degraded blacks, Jews, and, and immigrants. And so in 1983, Lewis Beam published a book called The Essays of a Klansman. This is from his book, quote, Today, there no longer exists in this country a government for the protection and benefit of descendants of those who created this nation. In place of such government, there now stands a powerful despotism of gullible and sometimes evil men committed to the, con to, committed to the eventual destruction of the white race, end quote. And during the 1980s, um, Advocates of these evolving movements began appearing on talk shows like the Jerry Springer show and also shows like Sally. But, but while they were doing this for, for like entertainment and for like fun on TV, off the air and in other parts of the nation, many of these groups were seriously dangerous. Laura Smith writes at the New York Times, quote, Mr. Beam and his cohort, cohort were looking to foment a race war, which they hoped would lead to the creation of a white ethno state. With that in mind, he and other movement leaders declared war on the U.S. government at the 1983 Aryan Nations World Congress at the organization's compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. End quote. So it was clear that they wanted nothing to do with the federal government. They wanted nothing to do with the government at all, and they wanted to overthrow it. And so they got started. Some of their first actions included bombing a natural gas pipeline in Arkansas, murdering a federal judge, FBI agent, and a pawnbroker who they mistakenly thought was a Jewish excuse me, who mistakenly thought, who, mis who they mistakenly thought was Jew. Uh, Lewis Beam was also rumored to be part of a group called Members of the Order, which was a surreptitious group, um, a part of the Aryan Nations. Uh, that group reportedly robbed cars in Washington and California. In Denver, Colorado, they shot and killed a Jewish radio host um, in his driveway. I mean, these people were ruthless and hated minorities so much in this country. There was even a conspiracy back in 1985 that Jews were out to get the farmers and take over their land. So these groups were growing and their hatred was escalating. And remember, these are the 1980s, which means the internet is beginning to evolve and people are starting to invest in computers. 
At this point, to most American families, the internet was just some obscure new invention that was logistically complex and, and too expensive. <laughs> but, 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 but to these white supremacy groups, they were early investors in the internet. They saw the internet as an expedient, sort of like as an expedient gift because they could use that to spread their message further. Mike German, an FBI veteran who specialized in who specialized in domestic terrorism, told the New York Times, quote, the first time I heard the word email was from the neo-Nazi skinheads, end quote. Later in 1985, the U.S. Justice Department saw this national network of white supremacists um, as a national security threat. And so federal prosecutors zoomed in and focused on the Aryan Nation's World Congress. And what resulted was an uncommon charge, seditious conspiracy. So the FBI went and they arrested Lewis Beam and 13 other white supremacist leaders. They were subsequently taken to Fort Smith, Arkansas, um, to be tried for these crimes. Consequently, mayhem um, essentially unfolded at the normally silent uh, town as the trial was ongoing in February of 1988. This is from the New York Times. Quote, the KKK held 15 rallies in front of the federal courthouse, blasting God bless America over the loudspeakers. Anti-Klan protesters carried signs reading evil, evil coneheads go away. The galleries of the courthouse were packed while snipers were positioned on the buildings' roof. Steve Snyder, an assistant U.S. attorney on the case, remembered taking a handgun to court in his briefcase every day. End quote. In federal court, Mr. Snyder discussed the defendant's plan, which included arsenals, militia training, armed robbery, murdering government officials, and planned attacks on infrastructure targets. He and others knew that building a case for seditious conspiracy would be extremely difficult. Um, Fraser Glenn Miller, um, Fraser Glenn Miller Jr., excuse me, then the head of the White Patriot Party, uh, said, quote, the whole purpose of this is to silence the white patriot movement, end quote. And there was other pushback on this as well. Protesters held signs outside the federal courthouse that read, quote, repeal the anti-free speech sedition law, end quote. Lewis Beam referred to these charges as the McCarthyism of the 1980s. As Beam was brought to the courthouse, a reporter asked him, quote, Lewis, did you aspire to overthrow the United States government? End quote. He responded, quote, what else would a country boy do on a Saturday night? End quote. After four long, exhausting days of deliberation and protest, the jury found the defendants not guilty of sedition and also not guilty of plots to murder government officials and transport counterfeit money across state lines. Uh, Judge Morris Arnold, who presided over the case, said, quote, I would have convicted them, end quote. Uh, Laura Smith writes at the New York Times, quote, the jury could not see the past the question. The jury could not see past the question of plausibility. The idea that a bunch of blue collar workers and religious zealots, zealots from Arkansas, Oklahoma and Texas could topple the most powerful government on Earth has seemed absurd, end quote. After that verdict, Lewis Beam and his supporters, uh, quote, marched over to the Confederate statue across the street from the courthouse and declared victory over the Zionist occupational government, end quote. Kathleen B. Liu, um, a history professor at the University of Chicago, said, quote, 
Um, after the trial, many in the movement felt emboldened by the government's failure to convict. End quote. The failure to convict these white supremacists led to many domestic terrorist attacks, including, but not limited to, the Oklahoma City bombing and also bombing abortion, also bombing abortion clinics. And this apparently became so alarming that in 2009, Daryl Johnson, a senior Homeland Security intelligence analyst, wrote an internal report about the threat and danger of right-wing extremism. And at this point in time, among the things happening in the country was the first black person ever being elected president of the United States. Barack Obama was elected president of the United States in 2008. In 2009, he was officially the president-elect. He would soon be sworn in as president of the United States on January 20th, 2009. And also there was antipathy among veterans returning home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Daryl Johnson's report was written off as hyperbolic, too extreme. That could never happen. But it's very well prescient today. I've read the report, it's just 10 pages, but here's one line that really stood out to me. Quote, New technologies also permit domestic extremists who send and receive encrypted communications into network with other extremists throughout the country and abroad, making it more difficult for law enforcement to deter, prevent, or preempt a violent extremist attack. End quote. In our modern era, there is Twitter, there is Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, and also other social media apps. Also, you can communicate over the internet and connect with your friends and family by by using Zoom and FaceTime. And that paragraph from that report stands out to me because of the history and what has happened recently. In the 1980s, Lewis Beam decided to use the internet as a way to further spread the message of white supremacy. Well, remember that Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in, in 2017? That was organized online and led to the death of a counter-protester after a white supremacist drove his car through the crowd. Today, there are more extremist groups and technology has evolved. Laura Smith writes at the New York Times, quote, Today, as extremist groups are expelled from Facebook and Twitter, they migrate to social networks like Gab and encrypted chat platforms like Signal. In the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, anti-government groups like the Oath Keepers coordinated their movements over the walkie-talkie app Zello, for instance. And the goals can sound chillingly similar to those envisioned by Mr. Beam and his cohort. The FBI recently arrested members of the base, a network of white nationalist cells, for plotting a series of attacks, including on drinking water supplies, that militias hoped would lead to a race war. The scale of all of it makes Mr. Beam's camaraderie 64s look disturbingly prescient. End quote. The Commodities 64s, of course, were the computers that Beam had invested in to spread his racist and xenophobic views. As of today, Lewis Beam has never been convicted of a felony and hasn't given a public speech since 1996. Nevertheless, his website is still publicly available for, uh, for viewing. Heidi uh, B. Rich, uh, the former head of the Southern Poverty uh, Law Center's intelligence project, said, quote, in a way, his work is sort of done. He got his message out there, end quote. 
As we're learning more about the insurrection and domestic terrorist attack that took place at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the story is just getting worse. Logan Jaffe and Jack Gillum reported at ProPublica on Thursday that these people gathered on surreptitious chats. We also have new reporting that indicates a document from a federal court indicating that militia groups and militia members planned the attack on the Capitol for weeks. In this court document, it indicates some of the messages that these people were transmitting uh, to each other through their social media feeds. Um, one, one of the messages said, quote, all members are in the tunnels under Capitol. Seal them in. Turn on the gas. End quote. There are also specific instructions in some of those messages. The man who threatened to assassinate Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Twitter is now facing federal charges. Also, many others who are involved in this insurrection, they are also facing federal charges as well. We have new reporting this week from The Guardian, uh, reportedly from uh, Jessica Glinza at The Guardian, who reports that two Proud Boys were arrested over the Capitol attack, including one who smashed a window. Uh, this is from her reporting. Quote, Federal law enforcement officials have arrested two members of the Proud Boys, a right-wing nationalist extremist group, for their role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6. The riot is now the subject of a second impeachment trial of President Donald, of former President Donald Trump, who is accused of inciting that the right-wing mob at a rally that immediately preceded the attack. Federal authorities have charged more than 150 people in this onslaught. Federal prosecutors indicated um, indicted. Dominic Pizzula, 43 years old, of Rochester, New York, and William P.P., 31, of Beacon, New, of Beacon, New York, on charges of conspiracy, civil disorder, unlawfully entering restricted buildings, and disorderly contact in, restricted, in restricted buildings. Both men were identified as members of the Proud Boys, who federal law enforcement, who federal charges, who federal charging documents noted, describing them themselves as a pro-Western fraternal organization for men who refuse to apologize for creating the modern world, aka Western chauvinist. The far-right group is known for using violent tactics against its opponents. Pazula was the subject of one of the most widely distributed videos of the Capitol riots in which he used a protective shield ripped away from a Capitol police officer to smash a window leading into the Capitol. End quote. As these indictments and arrests are being made, um, there's also growing concern about palpable tension in the United States Congress right now. Uh, this is from Democratic Representative P Pramila Jayapal. She says, quote, This is a real tension. I don't know if that's repairable. It is certainly a massive chasm that exists right now between a large majority of the Republican caucus and all of us Democrats across the ideological spectrum. End quote. Politico further reports, quote, the friction is particularly intense in the House, where two-thirds of the GOP conference voted to overturn the election just hours after lawmakers were attacked by a mob that demanded that very action. End quote. So this is reporting from, from Politico about this very, very palpable intention. Uh, this is the headline, quote, I'm just furious. Relations in Congress crack after the Capitol attack. End quote. Earlier this week, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said this. I do believe, and I have said this all along, that we will probably need a supplemental uh, for uh, more security for members. 
when the enemy is within the House of Representatives, a, a, a threat that members are concerned about in addition to what is happening outside. What exactly did you mean when you said the, that the enemy is within? What exactly did, did it you means mean that, that we have members of Congress who want to bring guns on the floor and have threatened uh, violence on other members of Congress? Madam Speaker, I wanted to ask you about Marjorie Taylor Greene. How concerned are you about her past posts, remarks, rhetoric? Um, what would you like to see done about her? What I'm concerned about is the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives who was willing to overlook, ignore uh, those uh, statements, uh, assigning her to the Education Committee when she has mocked the killing of little children at Sandy Hook Elementary School, when she has mocked the killing of teenagers in high school at the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School, what could they be thinking, or is thinking too generous a word for what they might be doing? It's absolutely appalling, and I think that the focus has to be on the Republican leadership of this House of Representatives for the disregard they have for the death of those children. That was Speaker Nancy Pelosi earlier this week saying that the enemy is within the House of Representatives. Earlier this week, the Senate held a vote on uh, to vote to vote on if the impeachment trial of President, of former President Donald Trump, is constitutional. Uh, during that vote, 45 Republicans voted that the trial was unconstitutional, and only five Republicans voted that the trial was constitutional. So they are unfortunately, but not surprisingly, uh, reluctant to hold the former president accountable for inciting an insurrection. An insurrection, of course on the United States Capitol, which they were in, in that circumstance. Not holding Donald Trump accountable for what he did sends a very dangerous message to him and also to others. And that message is loud and clear. We are not going to hold you accountable because it will divide the country. Therefore, it's best to forget and move on. Can we talk about something else now? That astonishing 360-degree turn from Repu by Republicans uh, did not sit well with MSNBC host Joe Scarborough earlier this week. This is what the Republicans in the Senate want you to forget. This is what Rand Paul wants you to forget. This is what Ted Cruz wants you to forget. This is what Ron Johnson wants you to forget. And I say never, never forget. Just like I said after 9-11, never forget that the Islamic terrorists came to our country and attacked us. And you know what? I said we needed to call them Islamic terrorists. You know why? Because they were Islamic terrorists. You know what these people are? These are Trump terrorists. Call them by their name. Once again, that was MSNBC host Joe Scarborough excoriating, excoriating Republicans, excuse me, on, on wanting to forget this and wanting to move on and essentially let the former president, Donald Trump, evade accountability for what he did. The Senate impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump begins on February 8th, 2021. There is one last point I want, I want to make here. One finer point to just to close this out. We are a rule of law country for a reason. 
We are a democratic republic for a reason. And that very reason, perpetuated by our founding fathers, is that when you commit a crime in this country, you will be held accountable. No matter your race, your status, wealth, name, political party, or position in power, no one is above the law. And inciting an insurrection is very well unlawful. Therefore, that person, whether they be a, a county judge or, or, or a public official or the president of the United States, him or herself, they must be held accountable. If, if not, if that person is not held accountable, then it will happen again. And when it does, we will not be so lucky next time. We may not be lucky next time. Because they invaded, they essentially evaded accountability the first time. What do you think that they think will happen when they do it again? Right? Why expect the consequences when it didn't happen to me the first time? Not holding former President Donald Trump accountable sets a very dangerous precedent. We are a democratic republic for a reason. Impeachment is clear and conspicuous in the Constitution for a reason. Inciting an insurrection is the very well reason to use impeachment to remove and convict a president, to convict and remove a president from office. Therefore, the president is out of office and Republicans are coming up with loot with this ludicrous, uh, essentially this ludicrous argument that no, we, we can't impeach the president, the former president. He's a private citizen. Impeachment was used to impeach uh, essentially presidents of the United States. You can't impeach a private citizen. This is their ludicrous argument here. It has happened before. There is, there is precedent. There is historical precedent for this. Back in the, the 1800s, we had a war secretary who essentially resigned so he didn't have to be impeached. Excuse me, so he didn't have to be impeached for what he did. And after he resigned, he was very well impeached for his actions. So a former president can be convicted. Also, the for that former president can be barred from office. That is one of the consequences of being impeached and convicted. Not holding former President Donald Trump accountable sets a very dangerous historical precedent. And that is that anyone who wants to do this or try this in the future, oh, fine, you can do this. Just look at what happened. Just look at what happened to Donald Trump. Nothing happened to him. I'm sure you'll be perfectly fine. And someone who may try to do this again in the future who may want to hmm, pursue this again in the future? Well, what if they are successful at it? What if they are successful at inciting an insurrection and being fully successful with this and getting their supporters to overthrow the U.S. government and to reinstall them in office for a second term or worse, for life? What happens then? What happens then? We've got more ahead tonight. Stay with us. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States, we see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see, are sparks, sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm, when neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown 
and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. Welcome back. On Thursday this week, it was reported that the first cases of the South African coronavirus variant were discovered here in South Carolina. On Friday, this was on the front page of the Post and Courier. Quote, Two SC patients have new virus variant. Patients are first in U.S. diagnosed with South African strain. End quote. Now, if you recall from reporting last week, uh, President Biden reinstated the international coronavirus travel ban. Among the names of the countries on that list, South Africa was one of them because of this new coronavirus variant. Now, as of today, we are not the only state in the nation with this variant anymore. It has been reportedly detected in Maryland. Uh, there, there in Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan said, quote, We strongly encourage Marylanders to practice extra caution, extra caution to limit the additional risk of transmission associate with this, associated with this new variant. Please continue to practice standard public health and safety measures, including mask wearing, regular hand washing, and physical distancing. End quote. Yesterday, the United Kingdom variant uh, was reportedly detected here in South Carolina for the very first time. Also, the highly transmissible Brazilian coronavirus variant was discovered in Minnesota on Monday. Dr. Anthony Fauci is now calling these new variants, quote, a wake-up call, end quote, uh, when it comes to vaccine developers in creating more of these vaccines. Also, um, as, as more of these new coronavirus variants are emerging, there's also renewed talk about wearing masks and how you should essentially wear these masks. This is reporting from Vinette Nirapal at the Washington Post, quote, the discovery, the discovery of highly transmissible coronavirus variants in the United States has public health experts urging Americans to upgrade the simple cloth masks that have become a staple shield during the pandemic. The change can be as simple as slapping a second mask over the one you already have on. Or, better yet, doning a fabric mask on top of a surgical mask. Some experts say it is time to buy the highest quality KN95 or N95 masks that officials hoping to reserve supplies for healthcare workers have long discouraged Americans from purchasing. End quote. Now, uh, Dr. Fauci, our nation's top infectious disease doctor, um, urged the public earlier this week, sort of endorsing this idea earlier this week, uh, but he has since essentially reversed course. He has withdrawn that idea, withdrawn that endorsement, and he is now encouraging Americans, us, to follow uh, CDC guidelines. So we are continuing to follow reporting about these new coronavirus variants emerging here in the United States and also around the globe. And I know that there's been lots of media coverage about these new coronavirus variants, uh, but there still are many issues here in the United States uh, when it comes to these coronavirus variants. Was also when it comes to, to the coronavirus in multiple states and also the vaccine. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden uh, delivered a speech in which he said that there will now be enough vaccine doses to essentially vaccinate majority of the American people. Anyone who wants a vaccine you essentially will now be available to get that dose. Recently discovered in the final days of the transition, and it wasn't until the final days we got the kind of cooperation we needed, that once we arrived, a vaccine program is in worse shape than we anticipated or expected. After a review of the current vaccine supply and manufacturing plans, I can announce that we will increase overall weekly vaccination distributions to states, tribes, and territories 
from 8.6 million doses to a minimum of 10 million doses. Starting next week, that's an increase of 1.4 million doses per week. And you all know, if I may note parenthetically, you all know, know that the vaccines are distributed to states based on population. They're based on population. And so the smaller the state, the less vaccine, the bigger the state, the more they get. And uh, so this is going to allow millions of more Americans to get vaccinated sooner than previously anticipated. We will both increase the supply uh, in the short term by more than 15 percent and give our states and local partners more certainty about when the deliveries will arrive. These two steps are going to help increase our prospects of hitting or exceeding, God willing, the ambitious goal of 100 million shots in 100 days. But I also want to be clear, 100 million shots in 100 days is not the end point. It's just the start. We're not stopping there. The end goal is to beat COVID-19. And we believe that we'll soon be able to confirm the purchase of an additional 100 million doses for each of the two FDA-authorized vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. That's 100 million more doses of Pfizer and 100 million more doses of Moderna, 200 million more doses than the federal government had previously secured, not in hand yet, but ordered. We expect these additional 200 million doses to be delivered this summer, and some of it will come as early, begin to come in early summer, but by the mid, by the mid summer, that this vaccine will be there, and the order, and 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 that increases the total vaccine order in the United States by 50 percent, from 400 million order to 600 million. This is enough vaccine to fully vaccinate 300 Americans by end of the summer, the beginning of the fall. But we want to make — look, that's — I want to repeat, it'll be enough to fully vaccinate 300 Americans to beat this pandemic, 300 million Americans. But the brutal truth is it's going to take months before we can get the majority of Americans vaccinated, months. In the next few months, masks, not vaccines, are the best defense against COVID-19. Experts say that wearing masks from now on just until April would save 50,000 lives who otherwise will pass away if we don't wear these masks. That's why I'm asking the American people to mask up for the first 100 days. Thank you. That was President Joe Biden earlier this week speaking about the coronavirus vaccine rollout and also securing more vaccines. And he was also speaking about wearing your mask in these 100 days to save as, as many lives as possible as we are dealing with this current coronavirus crisis right now here in the United States. Reportedly, COVID-19 hospitalizations and coronavirus cases have reportedly dropped. Um, according to CNN, um, January has been the deadliest month of this pandemic by far. CNN says, a CNN writes, quote, uh, for the first time in almost two months, less than 100 American, one, more than 100,000, Amer less than 100,000 Americans, excuse me, are hospitalized for COVID-19, end quote. Right now, there are more than 26 million coronavirus cases here in the United States and more than 439,000 deaths. According to the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, more than 514,000 Americans will be dead in mid-February as we continue to combat this crisis that we are in.
We are also in an economic crisis as well, an economic calamity. Earlier this week, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke about that in the Oval Office. Over a million people um, applied for unemployment insurance last week, and that's far more than in the worst week of the Great Recession. And economists agree that if there's not more help, many more people will lose their small businesses, the roofs over their heads, and the ability to feed their families. And we need to help those people uh, before the virus is brought under control. The President's American Rescue Plan will help millions of people make it to the other side of this pandemic. And it will also make some smart investments to get our economy back on track. I want to emphasize the President is absolutely right. The price of doing nothing is much higher than the price of doing something and doing something big. We need to act now, and the benefits of acting now and acting big will far outweigh the costs in the long run. Stay with us. We've got much more ahead. In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. Retiring Secretary of Defense James B. Forrestal and his newly appointed successor Louis A. Johnson drop in at the White House. Wartime Secretary of Navy and first American to assume the title of Defense Secretary, Forrestal gets warm thanks from the President. That was reporting back then when the first Secretary of Defense, James V. Forrestal, was getting ready to retire. James V. James v. Forrestal was the first Secretary of Defense. He became the first U.S. Secretary of Defense on September 17, 1947. Since then, every since then that role has always been filled. It has been a critical role in the U.S. government. It essentially began back under President George Washington when there were like four major positions for the U.S. presidential cabinet, and then it eventually progressed and evolved into a position, what we now know as today, as the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Well, last week on Friday, January the 22nd, a history-making decision uh, by, the, by the United States Senate was essentially voted and confirmed on. Uh, Lloyd Austin was confirmed as the first black U.S. Secretary of Defense in American history, just a historic first. Well, on yesterday, essentially, and on Friday as well, to conclude his first week in office as Secretary of Defense for the United States, uh, Secretary Secretary Austin uh, visited uh, the National Guardsmen troops who are deployed in Washington D.C. Here's what he told. Uh, excuse me. Here's what he told one of them, according to a Military Times reporter, Megan Myers. Quote. I know it's a little chilly out here. I know we're going to do the right thing to take care of you. So make sure you talk to your chain of command if you need anything. He also said this, quote, I just want to say thanks for what you're doing. Really appreciate you leaving home and family to come out here and defend and help us defend the Capitol. Stay alert. Take care of yourself. If you need anything, don't hesitate to let your chain of command know. End quote. This is from our nation's first black U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, on his first week in the job. 
um, thanking the National Guardsmen in Washington, D.C. Uh, reportedly, National Guardsmen in Washington, D.C. will remain deployed there until March, uh, through March as well, uh, because of the impeachment trial of former President Donald J. Trump and what that essentially could, uh, essentially, the result of that, what that could return to the Capitol in terms of violence and maybe his supporters coming back to the Capitol to, to sort of like show a, a sense of force or something. Uh, but we are going to be covering that impeachment trial uh, of former President Donald Trump in the Senate um, when that happens later next month. The last note is next. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Liz and I are going to do some work around the house. Do you know any good contractors? I might. That's great. Can you check their qualifications? Make sure they have great reviews and research the average price for the job. Oh, and book them on Wednesday. Actually, make it Friday. It went in the water. You can't expect your neighbors to do everything HomeAdvisor can. So for a better way to get home projects done right, just ask HomeAdvisor. Welcome back. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden took major executive action on climate change. This was news reporting from Sky News. For more than a century, the nodding donkeys of America's West have told the story of this country's thirst for oil. There are many who believe these landmarks of the fossil fuel boom should be consigned to history. Among them, Joe Biden, wielding his executive order pen again to undo more of his predecessor's legacy and putting climate change at the heart of his presidency. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Uh, we see it with our own eyes, we feel it, we know it in our bones, and it's time to act. This is where one of those orders will be felt the most. Half of New Mexico's billion-dollar oil revenue comes from drilling on public land, something that will now be restricted. Everything in our community revolves around oil and gas. If you own a restaurant, if you own a grocery store... As well as the economic hit, drillers like Ray Miller say renewables can't yet fill the void created by shutting off oil. Whether we produce it or not, it's just whether we'll be buying it from foreign sources uh, that have geopolitical risk or whether we produce it here in America. And we have great opportunities. We're blessed with the natural resources Good Lord, put it in the ground for us, but you know whether we extract it out will be our own uh, determination by the political beings. For the last four years, Americans saw their president roll back rules on things like car emissions. His successor says jobs and national security will come from following the science and changing the culture. I think we're in the middle of a major shift. I feel more optimistic than I have in a very long time. President Biden has acknowledged that the fossil fuel era needs to end and has taken important steps already to bring us into the clean energy future. The things that we need to do to address the climate emergency are things that are going to make the world safer, healthier, and more equitable for all of us. Two-thirds of Americans agree climate change is a global emergency, but Biden will face legal and political challenges. It will take more than executive orders to change the environmental landscape. Greg Milam, Sky News, Los Angeles. 
Climate change is an existential threat. It not, only, it not only threatens the life of citizens here in the United States, but also citizens abroad. This is an international issue. This is an international problem that we are reckoning with as we are essentially looking towards the future. I mean, this is a crisis that will not go away. Um, earlier this week, um, we had John Kerry, um, the, the special presidential envoy for climate, as along with another advisor, uh, to, a senior advisor to President Joe Biden, speak about climate change in the press, excuse me, in the press briefing room. Uh, according to CNN, quote, John Kerry, special presidential envoy for climate, said Sunday that the current goals under the Paris Climate Agreement are not enough to achieve the emission to limit the Earth's temperature. Quote, the goal thus far has been inadequate. The goal of achieving a 1.5 Celsius limitation on the rise of Earth's temperature is absolutely the, the appropriate goal. But the current promises of countries through the Paris Agreement are insufficient to get the job done. End quote. But the former U.S. Secretary of State said um, there was still time to do more when it comes to climate change. Quote, shortly after taking office, President Joe Biden took several executive actions aimed at the climate crisis and also rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, the landmark 2015 agreement on the U.S. abandoned under former President Donald Trump. The pact signed by nearly all the world countries seeks to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. On the campaign trail, Biden announced a goal of the U.S. achieving net zero emissions by 2050, and climate experts say the goal is aggressive but achievable. End quote. So we are dealing with a, a climate, a sort of like a climate crisis, and that has been acknowledged. Uh, there has been lots of sort of like fighting about this, but, but it has been acknowledged that we are dealing with a climate crisis and that's what's going on right now, right? Climate change is an existential threat and we need to find ways to start like investing in looking more into renewable energies and other things that can stop climate change. This is going to work. This is going to work in our battle against this major, major crisis. Um, if you recall, Amanda Gorman spoke at uh, the inauguration. Um, she was this inspirational, she gave this inspirational poem about uh, unity and also a lot more in that poem um, at the inauguration. Well, she did a speech, she, excuse me, she did a poem on climate change uh, back in 2018, December 4th, 2018. And I feel that this is worth listening to. All right, here it is. On Christmas Eve, 1968, astronaut Bill Anders snapped a photo of the Earth as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. Those three guys were surprised to see from their eyes a planet looked like an Earth lies, a blue orb hovering over the moon's gray horizon with deep oceans and silver skies. It was our world's first glance at itself, our first chance to see a shared reality, a declared stance and a commonality, a glimpse into our planet's mirror. And as threats drew nearer, our own urgency became clearer as we realized that we hold nothing dearer than this floating body we all call home. 
We've known that we're caught in the throes of climactic changes some say will just go away, while some simply pray to survive another day. For it is the obscure, the oppressed, the poor, who when the disaster is declared done, still suffer more than anyone. Climate change is the single greatest challenge of our time. Of this you're certainly aware, it's saddening, but I cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the facts straight that gets us to act and not to wait. So I tell you this not to scare you, but to prepare you, to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities, we all care to protect this world, this riddled blue marvel, this little true marvel to master the verve and the nerve to see how we can serve our planet. You don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve, to protect, to preserve that one and only home that is ours to use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve. We are demonstrating, creating, advocating. We heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, pale blue dots we will fail you not just as we chose to go to the moon we know it's never too soon to choose hope we choose to do more than cope with climate change we choose to end it we refuse to lose we do this and more not because it's very easy or nice but because it is necessary because with every dawn we carry the weights of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star and as heavy as the weight sounded it doesn't hold us down but it keeps us grounded steady ready because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an earth rise to see it close your eyes visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us change makers are in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view, we witness its round green and brilliant blue, which inspires us to ask deeply, wholly, what can we do? Open your eyes, know the future of this wise planet is right in sight, right in all of us. Trust this earth uprising, all of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before, for it is our hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for. That was Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman giving that inspirational, influential uh, poem about climate change. My apologies, I was about to say speech. That was a remarkable and influential poem about climate change uh, called Earth Rise by Amanda Gorman. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share this episode with your family and friends. I apologize for not essentially posting on a consistent basis. Uh, that will resume very, very shortly. Thank you again for listening. I'll be uh, posting again tomorrow on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Have a great day and remember to stay positive and inspired.